friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're going to be exploring some very interesting topics today, very important topics. You may have been following along with the Wall Street Journal's expose of the Facebook files. This is a real eye-opener. A lot of things that we suspected but didn't have confirmation of. Uh, in particular, the toxic environment that social media is creating, especially of how it affects young people, especially girls. My TCA colleague and co-host Maureen Ferguson will be with me at the bottom of the hour to flesh out some of the major issues with the social media network and its effects. But first, I'm happy to have my TCA colleague Lee Sneed with me as we chat with Dr. John Brachalski. He is OBGYN, a pro-life OBGYN at Divine Mercy Care and Tepeyac Clinic in the D.C. area. He serves so many women and babies as an OBGYN and also travels across the nation sharing a pro-life message and helping women choose life. He was just named the recipient of the 2022 Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Award. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. As co-hostess, before we bring Dr. Brachowski on, I'd love to chat with you about one of the many things we have in common. We're both adoptive mothers. And our experiences are different, but I'll talk about mine first. I have three sons, all adopted domestically as newborns. I have a 16, almost 17 year old. And then after he was born, we adopted twins. Um, nice. and I don't, sometimes I, I do hate to share my story as much as I love to preach the joys of adoption to anyone interested because it wasn't very long. It didn't take us very long to, to get matched with a birth mother. Um, in fact, it was about six weeks with our first, between our first meeting with the adoption agency, getting chosen by birth parents, and then having my newborn baby in, in my arms. Six weeks. Twin, six weeks, about six weeks from the first meeting. And then it was about one to two weeks before the due date that we found out we'd been chosen. And so that's amazingly, it was amazing. And then when we actually worked with another Catholic medical hero, uh, Dr. Hilgers for a while, and then we spent some time abroad and we just still weren't getting pregnant. And I thought, well, you know, we took a break and I thought, well, maybe we should get going again. And my husband said, you know, this is actually great not having to worry about this month to month. Let's just adopt again. We, we love our son. Let's just adopt again. And we did. And 48 hours after we had turned in all of our background work and paperwork, etc., I was in the delivery room. No. Being born. <laughs> yeah. 48 hours. So it happened fast both times. Wait, I so Lee, you, were, you saw your children being born? The twins, not the first. That's um, spectacular. He was 12 years old, I think, maybe. 12, 12 hours. 12 hours. Yeah. I have a sadness in my I love my adopted daughter and I, I give thanks for her day and night and I'm, I, I feel sad that I didn't know her for the first months of her life that I wasn't at her birth that I wasn't in the beginning when I first fell in love with her I thought about this all the time and it hurt me that I wasn't there for her now I, as I see her developing so well and so beautifully I don't think about that so much but definitely it was it was a sadness for me so I'm, I'm really happy that you had them right from the beginning that's very yeah, very nice it's always relative too because like so you had 
that experience to compare with your biological children. For me, I didn't have biological children, so I wish that I had sort of known them in the womb you know, and been able to be with them from the first moment. And I mean, although we like to say they were in our hearts, there's something about, there's something very physical about a mother-child relationship, especially in those early days. And well, and, and for me, I was lucky that I worked with a wonderful lactation consultant and a lot of women don't know it's possible, but I was able to induce lactation. Were you really? Yes. And, so and, the, and they were, and they were newborns. Cooperate with you finally. And they were newborns because I, I, I know sometimes yeah. people try to do that with older babies mm-hmm. and that's very difficult. And it's, I think it's a, maybe a little hard on the baby who's <laughs> been drinking from a bottle. Too, but you know, I know a woman who adopted twins from Ethiopia and I think they were four when they came to her finally after the trips back and forth. And one of them just sort of asked for the breast one day and she actually wrote about it in her blog. I think it was Slow Mama actually was the name of the blog. I'm not sure whether it's still up or not, but it was a beautiful story about how she just felt that feeling just to say yes. And her daughter nursed for comfort for a little while while she made the transition into her new family. And it was gorgeous. Yeah, it was That's, really moving that, and beautiful. That process, the process of falling in love with your children and having your children fall in love with you. For you, maybe it was a little different because they were newborns, but many moms by mm-hmm. adoption and fathers by adoption, we do this uh, when the children are a little older and it's it's really a lovely process. It's very different from the from giving birth and, and receiving the children as newborns or right from our own bodies, but it's so pretty. And I was actually talking to my adopted daughter is now 14. And uh, on the way to school a couple of days ago, I was telling her that yeah. adoption is the way that God relates to each of us by that's how he chose to relate to us. He adopts right. us and he makes us his children through adoption. I was telling her, you see, it is such a lovely, elevated, dignified, noble thing that God chose it. God chose that as the vehicle by which he would communicate with us. He would make us his own. And so I'm sure I've said this to her before, but I I think it really registered this time. I told her, you know, you're a very special girl because you have your birth parents somewhere and I'm sure they love you and think of you all the time and we pray for them and they pray for you, I'm very sure. And now you have this relationship with us that is very, that it mirrors the relationship of God Mm -hmm. with his children, with his human children. Yeah, and I think that's a story that needs to be retold to our children over and over again because, you know, they mature so fast and they're little minds and their souls change all the time and they relate to that information in a different way. So yeah, I think it only gets better. Now the reason, Lee, that you and I wanted to talk on the show about this particular topic about adoption is because October is Respect Life Month Mm -hmm. and adoption is the loving option as my daughter was holding, my daughter was holding a sign on the side of the street a couple days ago. My son did that too. He said, yep, he said adoption is a loving option. It's the same sign. Yep. All his Mm -hmm. friends actually handed him that sign when they all went down to the pro-life march. (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a beautiful sign because truly once you have an adopted child, once you know an adopted child, you realize there are no extra children. There are no unwanted children. There are no children that ought to be destroyed. You know, every single child is this perfect gift from God. If only we can find the grace to receive them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's hope that October Respect Life Month, there's lots of demonstrations, lots of thoughtful dialogue about what's better. You know, I had this talk with somebody. I invited a, a lady a woman I know, I don't know her very well, but I invited her to, to go to the march with us. This was a chain for life a few days ago that's held all across the United States. She said to me, you know, I would never personally, this is a very common refrain, I would never personally have an abortion, but, you know, I worry about all those children that are born and then abused. And maybe it would have been better for them. And I said to her, she didn't know I had an adopted child at the time, so I said to her, well, you know, there's other options. There's more options than death or abuse. I said, there's adoption, for instance, like, you know, my daughter. She goes, oh, I didn't know. She said, you know, 
you're right. I'm going to come to that march. <laughs> so, That's wonderful. Good evangelizing. That is good event. Yeah, I think we need to change hearts one at a time and try to create that culture one person at a time. Create the culture where abortion is unthinkable. And that adoption is always celebrated because I've had people even say, when I say like, oh, well, my children are adopted, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> are you kidding? It's the best thing that has ever, ever happened to me. And, you know, I, I like to think it's pretty good for them too, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure know, it's wonderful I, for them. Yeah. So anyway, it's just so I think that people have some ideas that are stuck in the past with maybe some bad practices. They've heard a few horror stories and it tarnishes the whole beautiful practice. Well, you know, there's always, there's humans involved in it. So there's going to be mistakes and things are going to go wrong sometimes, but for sure, it's the loving option. Lee, it's really wonderful talking to another adoptive mom about these beautiful concepts. I hope that our, uh, our listeners are moved by our experiences. Me too. I love talking about adoption. I could talk about it all day long. You know, now let's bring on the phone Dr. John Bruchelski. He is a physician and OBGYN extraordinaire. He heads up the Tepeyac Clinic in Northern Virginia, and he is also the man behind Divine Mercy Care. He's an OBGYN who has devoted his life after his conversion to making the world of OBGYN a world that is completely welcoming to the child, sees the child as a patient, sees the mother and the child as a unit. In fact, sees the mother and the whole and the father and the child as a unit, sees the whole family. So let's talk to Dr. John Bruchelski. Dr. Bruchelski, we were so happy to see that the University of Notre Dame awarded you with the Evangelium Vitae Award for <laughs> next year. And my husband, Carter Sneed, wrote in the press release. I, I have to say, too, I have to interrupt myself to say that I can't tell you the number of text messages and phone calls I've gotten from people in this community who have been patients of yours, who have had babies delivered by you, who are asking me to book them seats and I have to remind them that I don't work there but I will, I will try to get them to do the best I can I'll direct them to the you're dealing with anyway. a superstar Lee yes, oh um, please yeah I know so anyway people are dying to get to you so my husband wrote in the press release Dr. Bruchowski is a shining example of the church's untiring commitment to directly serving mothers children and families <laughs> your work is such a vital component to our pro-life commitment as Catholics, and your work, Doctor, has been spurned on by your own conversion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Lee, thank you so much uh, for the kindness. Uh, sometimes I get a little uh, awkward with uh, being honored for not uh, killing babies and trying to care for those <laughs> who are weakest in our community. And with all the people that I've delivered, because I'm so old, it's all paid advertisement, as they would say. And uh, so I'm really humbled and just overwhelmed. I'm a poster child for the uh, Catholics uh, growing up since the 1960s. All the goods and bads of, um, of what that means. I've uh, lived through that, including buying the drinking the Kool-Aid or buying the lie that women deserve abortion as health care. So I wanted to liberate women from their fertility to give them happiness and joy and peace. And I ended up practicing what I preached because you know, my daddy, uh, who was an incredible man who loved the Lord, loved Our Lady, loved the church, loved loved our country, he also taught in, in a high school these very principles. Well, because I believed in a woman's right to choose, I went ahead and uh, learned how to terminate and abort all size babies, provide all sorts of contraception. And it was only because of my mom and dad, I think, who dedicated me to Our Lady, but also so many people out there, so many of the incredible pro 
life movement. Those people who are just silent, they prayed for conversion, and thanks be to God, through circumstances that I cannot even imagine, but through patients and through other doctors and through other people and through students, I came to my senses where I had an experience with the Mother of God a few times in my life, and all of a sudden, the truth became alive, and it was always about consequences. The convert, you know, I I love the program, Conversations with Consequences, right? (laughs) Well, it's now about the conversation of conversion, but it's not with words. It's with your heart, and it's with your actions. I see what your program does, Dr. Christie. It moves me to the point that these people put their heart, the love of Christ, into what they're doing. Oh, thank and you, Doctor. And that's the key. Oh, no, I'm, I'm serious. So, uh, I'm trying to prep. I, I was looking just at who you had on and whether it's the heartbeat bill, which is politics, or whether it's servicing, which is, you know, social, you know, psychiatry. You talk about people who have heart in their work because once again words have a very difficult meaning these days we, mm-hmm. we, we oh my god mercy it, it means different things to different people women i can't even use the word women anymore women. recently at the hospital at the hospital i got hit on oh no these are birthing people john and oh. so the whole world's changing but what does transpire is the love of jesus and the best example of that was the mother of god john and that moment I, that moment of conversion that you had it must have turned your entire life upside down but i also <sighs> i also imagine that you brought so much beautiful energy to it, like a real enthusiasm. Is that true or am I imagining that wrong? I am sure that you are correct. It's very hard to capture in my heart and in my words what happened. But I can tell you, I felt loved. I felt loved for the first time in my life. I felt the love of my parents. I felt the love of all these family members who prayed for me, knowing that I was kind of off the rails, so to speak, and I was destroying life and I was hurting women. And yet they just prayed for me. And when you meet Jesus and Mary heart to heart, as St. Francis de Sales would say, or eye to eye, or your whole life changes. And you can never go back, meaning the holes, the pain that he suffered so that I could become whole again and come to know him. And once again, it's not the work I do. It's not the work you do, but it's the the knowledge and the relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about it here at the office all the time. Health is based on relationships that are sacrificial. Mm -hmm. The relationship between you and your family, the relationship between you and your physician or your healthcare provider, but also the most important between you and Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And ever since, um, what is it, Constantine and his mom kind of introduced this so you know, thousands of years ago, the world has been pushing back and it just seems as if we've gotten to a point now where words no longer matter, everything's become fossilized, and it's only going to be the love of Christ and the love of us left here on this earth doing his, building his kingdom come. When you were describing this, the way that you experienced uh, your conversion, it reminded me of, of the very real, of the reality that when, when People who are pro-life, whether we're Catholic or of, of other denominations, when we propose that there is uh, there is a possibility of change, that you can come back from the other side, it's a it's a proposal of mercy, of real love and mercy. And and when when people yes. when we experience it, when when maybe some of us have been on the other side, like you, and have come back, and, and I wasn't always passionately pro-life. When you experience that that wonderful welcome of saying your past doesn't matter, we've all made mistakes. God's yes. God's merciful bounteous love is ready to wash all over you and, and just make you happy. Yeah, no, it's so true. And that mer- always yeah. do with, with, with the um, sacrament of reconciliation.
conversation. Catherine Jean Lopez has such a great social media presence to remind us all to run to the confessional every day because, you know, even if you take a little step outside, you want to be back in, inside. And, you know, it's possible for anybody. I, I absolutely agree. That mercy and love breeds hope. And that hope, it becomes contagious and it fills your being. When I left the hills, when I left the hill, I heard she said, go show yourself to the priest. And I can tell you that that confession coming off the hill after that experience that I had was the most wonderful, cleansing, mm-hmm. peaceful <laughs> moment wow. that I can even. And so when I talk to folks, I would love them to come through our offices, through listening to your program and go directly to confession, because there is a certain consequence. When you talk about conversations with consequences, I think about it. This, this, this conversation is for my consequence. It's, it's helping me have a softer heart for others and to know that I am loved. And I want to share that with my female patient. You know, I'm a gynecologist, so it's my, with my patients. And it's all about, especially if you're, you know, we're all in need. As, as Mother Teresa told me, oh, no, Johnny, <laughs> you, you see enough. You bring, Cal- you bring Calcutta to Fairfax because <laughs> even wealthy people need forgiveness and peace. No, so you're so, you're so right. And Catherine uh, Lopez is just a tremendous voice out there in the wilderness for, for so many of us. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have the great Dr. Bruchowski with us and also my colleague Lee Sneed as co-hostess. But Dr. Bruchowski, you are famous everywhere for the way that you've been able to create an OBGYN practice with many other doctors that work with you and nurses and and in a way that welcomes the whole woman, all her fertility, all her great possibilities, all the wonderful possible futures of her life, and welcomes her whole family and her husband and the children. And how did you create such a such an amazing place? Um, she told me, the Blessed Mother told me what to do. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I am not, I, I listen to you. I mean, I, I listen to people say this and it had nothing to, I am humbled by it, but this is not not something that I came up with. Johnny, be the best doctor you can be. See the least of your brothers and sisters and follow the teachings of my son's church. Once again, people ask me for business plans and it's almost a joke with me because I business plan. Mm-hmm. This was a matter of just simply following this this mother to wherever, whatever door they opened. So I knew coming off that hill that I understood for the first time Humanae Vitae. I understood for the first time the catechism. I don't understand how it happened, but I can tell you that there was a deep connection of the of what it means to be human. And that also just transpired to my patients, meaning care for the whole person. Don't suppress fertility. Cooperate with it. Cooperate. Listen. It's slow medicine. This is not something that you can do with a quick test or a quick answer. This is about meeting people where they're at. This is about giving them the best the best advice you can, whether it's allopathic or naturopathic medicine, you present them options and then you give them good science and then you allow the Holy Spirit to enter through good prayer, body, soul, and spirit. You work on the forgiveness of parts of your life and then you just begin to put into play the therapy or the treatment and it, the good Lord does all the hard work. In our case, I just knew that I had to partner with all the different pregnancy centers in the region in order to fulfill the love of Jesus 
to my community to build, to allow us to become a vehicle for the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was literally just going to them and saying, hey, send your patients to us. We'll find a way to pay. The first few years, we were for profit. We try to pay it out of our profit margin. But then as, you know, medical uh, issues became, you know, traumatic with malpractice premiums and, you know, government-run health care and the lack of religious freedom, you simply, we went not for profit because I couldn't go back on those three divine, those three commands. I would be disobedient if I did that. And so I encourage everyone out there when they come visit, uh, this is part of the secret of this place. It's be the best doc you can, try to see the underserved in your daily work, and then lastly, follow the teachings of my son's church. And you can't go wrong, meaning it's a challenge, but you can't go wrong. There's peace and joy, and I can go to sleep at night knowing that I've, you know, I've served the Lord today. Because as you said, once you get filled with the Spirit, you got to share it with other people. John, when um, when you you and I understand what we're talking about, Lee understands, I think our listeners understand the beauty of, of Tepeyac and of your work. We are entering into times now politically which are, are more and more fraught. There's less and less understanding of our of our point of view, of, of our holistic point of view that, that accepts the entire woman and her children uh, as valuable and, and, and tender children of God. But what would you say, what do you say when confronted with the idea that when a woman is pregnant with a child that she didn't plan or it's unexpected, that she and the child are somehow in opposition? Because I feel that that is the general idea behind so many attacks. You know, the woman is in uh, danger of her life being destroyed by the child in some yes. way. Yes, oh, oh, Grazi, you're you're ap- you're absolutely uh, on the point. One of the principles of Tepiac here is you never pit mom against the baby. You never, because I have to care for both patients, and just like faith and reason, they go together. Now, for the person who thinks abortion is healthcare, it's brutality and death to the child, and it's hurtful towards the woman either in the short term or the long term. For instance, the rape patient. You know, the act of intimacy or the act of barbarism by the man on the woman is already there. The abortion just makes you going after, it kind of makes you go after the other innocent life here. Mm -hmm. That damage is already there internally. And so what I have found is, is that you never pit mom against a baby. You get, try to get them far, you try to get them both as far along as possible. And that's the key. And as long as you show people good science, whether it's the heartbeat, um, even though even the heartbeat now, people are getting so hardened, oh no, just tell me where to go to get the abortion. If you are able to show them women who have survived the experience they're going through, plus good science, so it's experiential, just like uh, John Paul would talk about with his phenomenology, but it's also about good science. There's a heartbeat. There's a new life. You know, this we can get through this together. There's a way to work through this so both can win. Both. That's the key I have found over time. It's just meeting people where they're at, telling them that um, there is a uh, a more into you know, a kind of a healthier way to get through this challenge rather than ending the pregnancy because that only ends the life. It doesn't end all the other issues that brought you to that point. In fact, it might exacerbate them. Oh, I just wanted to ask you about the flip side of that with women who are experiencing uh, secondary infertility, primary infertility, who wish to be pregnant, who are planning to get pregnant and can't. And you've got a, a, a program called Hannah's Hope. And can you tell us about this outreach? 
Sure, sure. Hannah's Hope is a conversation that we have with women struggling for fertility. Fertility is a desire. It's not a diagnosis. Infertility is a not technically a diagnosis. It's a it's a common it's a it's a description. And so we try to bring together the best of medicine to show them real options of how we can help treat underlying causes through NAPRO technology, through surgery, how we can refer people in and out. But also when none of that's working and you're beating yourself up again, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up, not you know, because either, you know, you think the infertility is not explainable or maybe it's due to your own behavior, that the suffering, by leaning into the suffering through prayer, that suffering actually finds meaning. And that meaning can be some of the greatest growth experiences in anyone's life. But you don't come right out and say that. You kind of work with people and accompany them and walk with them. Hannah's hope for us, um, how do I say, we're a mash unit. The mother of God said, Johnny, patch people up and send them back out to the front line. <laughs> so your, your audience are truly the frontline heroes of today. <laughs> the pro-life folks uh, in front of the clinics, the people who pray that silent prayer every day for their family, the mom who doesn't throw out her daughter who either got pregnant or had an abortion, walking with them, accompanying them. My job is simply <laughs> to just patch you up like a, like a forward mash unit and send you back out into the fight. And it's not easy at times, but the Holy Spirit is never outdone in generosity. And I have found that whether you are a evangelical or a Roman Catholic or a Orthodox or a, a Jew or, or a nothing, <laughs> this approach resonates with people because there's an authenticity, there's an integration, and there's an attempt at listening. And it's like you said, conversations with consequences. Every patient we see, every history I take, every physical exam we do, every lab test we do, it's about conversations with consequences. And we literally know that it's a body, soul, and spirit integrated approach to health. End of discussion. Dr. Um, Brachowski, you know, it's amazing to think of the fortune of your patients, the blessedness of your patients. So many doctors now think of themselves as vending machines, you know, just delivering whatever the whatever the patient wants, whether or not it's good for them. And, and you you really see the whole you see the whole person and you see them as children of God that's very apparent and thank you so much for sharing your time with us uh -huh. I know that your time Dr. is extremely Christy, valuable you. Uh, you are so kind and thank you for everything and uh, we'll keep each other in our prayers definitely doctor okay. um, thank you doctor see you in April <laughs> And also, oh my gosh, Lee, I can't wait. <laughs> it's, a, it's always a good night. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more, learn more about Dr. B's wonderful work, check out tepeyakobgyn.com. That's spelled T-E-P-E-Y-A-C-O-B-G-Y-N and Divine Mercy Care at divinemercycare.org. And congrats again on your wonderful award, Dr. Vitalski. Oh, please. Thank you. Uh, God bless you. Welcome back to Conversation.
Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Hi, Gracie. Great to be chatting today. I really wanted to talk to you about the Facebook files and everything that we are learning. Things that we suspected, things that we were afraid were true, but now we seem to have a lot of proof to back up our suspicions, all from the Wall Street Journal, very well researched, and things that are, you know, making us stop and say, did we really just hand our lives and our children's lives over to these tech giants who don't seem to have our good in mind? Well, that's exactly right. And this Wall Street Journal series has really been explosive because there's a whistleblower at Facebook. She is coming before Congress this week, actually, to um, share all of her documents, uh, many of which the Wall Street Journal has already been digging into. But all of you know these sort of bombshell revelations are kind of things that parents already knew. We could tell that social media was bad for our kids. But now we have all kinds of evidence showing that social media and these smartphones are leaving kids more depressed, more anxious, for sure, more lonely, particularly for girls having serious body image issues. So parents have had the instinct that this is bad for their kids. But now uh, we're kind of seeing it in black and white from the, the big tech giants own documents. Do you remember when back when when the internet came out (laughs) and all of us were sort of puzzled what is the internet what does it mean that was a while ago but even not so long ago when schools started to implement technology in the classroom we were told that the way to human flourishing the way to education the path forward for the young people was to get everybody really connected remember there was all this talk about how every kid had to have a laptop you know every kid in deepest darkest Africa had to have his own laptop and wi-fi connection and otherwise they'd be left behind now I'm starting to think, and I'm sure you agree with me, Maureen, that we're the ones who've been left behind, like the human person has been left behind by technology. It's exactly right. These devices, these platforms are really making us less human. And really, social media should be called unsocial media, because particularly with children whose brains just aren't developed yet, and they're still learning in-person social interactions. So to have them hooked on social media is actually making them more lonely and disconnected and of course it it affects different kids differently but but with their developing brains and with the way that social media companies are actually preying on our children it's you know parents are all worried about online predators well I think what we're learning is that the social media companies are the online predators wow Maureen that's a strong statement social media companies as predators but I think you're on the ball sadly I think it's it's true. And if any parents listening have not watched the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, it's uh, whistleblowers from other companies, from Google, Twitter, and then now we have this big whistleblower from Facebook, which of course owns Instagram. So it's a whistleblower who's telling us all kinds of things about Instagram. But what this documentary, again, called The Social Dilemma, tells us about is that sort of the geniuses out at Silicon Valley, they work with psychologists that are learning how to hook our children. And one of the exposés in the Wall Street Journal was about TikTok. 
and it kind of goes in depth about the algorithms. So if you have a child who just hovers for a moment over an image that's a little bit sexual, TikTok, the artificial intelligence, instantly learns, oh, there's curiosity there. And then it serves up a feed of sexual content that curious young minds go down such rabbit holes and, uh, you know, they don't have the judgment or impulse control. They're developing teenage brains and TikTok knows this and they then serve up feeds. If, if you want to be absolutely horrified, Google the Wall Street Journal expose on TikTok. The title of the article is How TikTok Serves Up Sex and Drug Videos to Minors. I mean, this is nothing like the sex, drugs and rock and roll that our parents used to fret about. Maureen, do you remember when everybody was so outraged that cigarette companies knew that smoking was addictive and that it caused cancer? And this was, wow, everybody was so horrified. How could they do this to us? But we're allowing giant tech companies to cause all of us, adults and children, but super sad for the children, to become addicts to their ploys. I mean, they're creating addictive interactions on purpose to keep us hooked. And as you say, to the lack of the values and the lack of morals that they show, and especially in the, in the field of family and human sexuality, to pervert our children and to destroy the, their futures, really. Because if your mind is so warped as a child and as a teen that, that you're not able to form a happy, steady, stable family, then what could be worse? I'd much rather my children get lung cancer. So it's absolutely true. And we're learning le more and more about the addictive nature of these things. And again, watch The Social Dilemma and you'll see it. So I think we know the content is bad. It's actually so much worse than we think it is. And on TikTok, you know, it's glorification of eating disorders, for example. Wow. And again, if they see a girl has any, the artificial intelligence quickly reads a girl's mind, essentially, and then manipulates her mind to draw her further into this. So one of the videos in the Wall Street Journal article talks about how it's a quote from a girl, I threw up for the first time today. It felt so relieving. I'll be skinny soon. So oh, endless content like that for any girl that, that the artificial intelligence can tell has body image issues. And which girl, um, which girl doesn't, Maureen, these days? Which girl doesn't, right? And <laughs> Maureen, and you know what's so, so sad about TikTok? And I want to hear about the sexual content. I don't want to hear about it, but I think we need to talk about it. What's so sad about TikTok is TikTok is specifically, and maybe some of our listeners don't know about TikTok because they might not have young preteens in their home and teenagers. TikTok is specifically targeted at nine and 10-year-olds. As soon as these kids get a phone on their hand, in, in their hand, in their possession, or their mother's phone or their father's phone, because I've seen very young children using TikTok just using their parents' phone, they're encouraged to make these little videos and join this online community that at first seems very benign because they are doing a little, you know, a cute little dance video and it's very um, innocent and, and pure, but they start sharing it and then they're pulled and they're sucked into this dark web. That's exactly right. And what the Wall Street Journal did was they created accounts saying that they were 13 to 15 years old, and then they examined the content of those accounts. They say it was dominated by sexual content. And when I say sexual content, this is beyond pornography, which is bad enough because it rewires children's brains, but things like how to tie knots for sex, recover from violent sex acts, fantasies about rape. 
And and at one point, the Wall Street Journal says the accounts feed was 90% about bondage and sex. And this was this was created so that TikTok knew that it was a 13. So the algorithm has the information that this is a young, young girl or young boy, a 13 to 15 year old. All this time, they have the algorithm. Yes. In front of them. And it and it purposefully shovels filth at children is what you're saying. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing, Maureen. And that we've handed over our children to them. I went to dinner with my husband on Saturday night. We try to do a date night every week. We almost always succeed, thank God. We went to a restaurant and in the the table next to us was a couple out with their two young boys and each one of them had an iPad in front of them and they had headphones plugged into the iPad and they never looked up from the iPad and the parents were having a really nice romantic dinner. I guess they didn't have to get a sitter because they gave the sitting privileges to the tech companies. So aren't a lot of parents making the tech companies their babysitters? Absolutely. And I'm I'm in the process of writing a piece on just this point right now because we have this Facebook whistleblower. Congress is reacting. We have a very laudable bipartisan effort here to expose the social media companies and their manipulation of our children. You know, they're rewiring an entire generation's brains. Um, but, but so even though there's bipartisan support for an investigation into this on Capitol Hill, we parents have the ultimate control. We do not have to buy these devices for our children. I mean, we don't have to give them a smartphone. We can wait until they're much older and have developed more, you know, self-control, self-mastery of these things. You know, if your child can't even make their bed or keep their room straight, how are they going to have the self-mastery to control these devices? The only way a parent, once you give the device to your child, you're sort of entering into a constant tug of war with your child. It's actually much easier to just say no to social media, no smartphone. You can give a dumb phone to your kid. There, there's these, my, my teenagers have, it's called a Gab Wireless, and it's a phone that's just a phone. It's, you know, texting. There's there's just no reason that your child needs a supercomputer in their pocket at all times. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. We're discussing the devastatingly dark realities of social media, especially as they apply to the younger people amongst us. Maureen, as far as adults are concerned, we set very bad example for our children very often. We set a bad example for young people. We we, we ourselves have become addicted to that constant interaction with total strangers. <laughs> and uh, they many times it's total strangers. Many times it's people that we don't really have any interest in or relationship with, but we were interested in whether they like our, our little post or, or our picture. I think a lot of us get drawn into it because we well, we, we want to see, uh, we want to communicate with, see our friends' um, lives, is how they're going, and we, we're drawn there by affection and, and, and by, by for good reasons, but we quickly then become addicted. So I can just, I can just only begin to imagine what it is for a young, for a young person. I've watched it happen, but you and I had the kind of childhoods where we played outside and when we had relationships, we had to make them face to face, heart to heart. It's very sad for children that they that they're missing so much to instead be given, like you say, a supercomputer in their pocket. Well, it, it's true, and and my point is, we don't have to say yes today. Um, I mean. And the the best way to do it is to get together with the the parents 
uh, of your children's friends and get together, collude together. Parental collusion is a good thing when you're looking mm-hmm, out for that's the good true. of your children. Very true. But, but get together and say, we're going to put off uh, smartphones for our kids. There's a great website called Wait Until Eighth. So, you know, it argues don't give your kid a smartphone until they're at least in eighth grade. I would argue go even farther than eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Our, our teenagers, we waited till junior, senior year. And, you know, they did just fine. We very consciously helped them to build an in-person social life, you know, invest in a ping pong table for your basement or a fire pit for your backyard, you know, let them eat pizza and junk food and make your (laughs) house the teenager hangout house. And, you know, our our children who had no smartphones or social media until they were much older teens, they were perfectly well-adjusted children. I mean, my two girls were elected president of their senior class by their peers, even though they weren't, you know, on social media or didn't have a smartphone. So it's possible to help our children to build in real life social lives. And it's so much healthier for them to grow up without being influenced by YouTubers and TikTokers and and being manipulated by these Silicon Valley algorithms. It's, you know, you can actually outsmart the artificial intelligence of, of the Silicon Valley geniuses by not giving these devices to your kids. We are making them pray when we hand them the device, right? Where there's predators, whether uh, those those are people, but also algorithms and also tech companies, and we make them pray when we give them the phones. What do you think? You mentioned um, Congress taking a look at this, investigations by the government. What do you think would, would spark their condemnation? Is it the, the fact that the algorithms are built to create addiction, or is it the fact that what what they're being what people are being exposed to especially children is so um degenerate because i wonder if that they can even go that far in in that moral realm of saying oh these these kinds of sexualities children shouldn't be exposed to would they even go so far are they more worried about addiction well what caught the eye of uh leaders in the senate was the fact that facebook knows instagram is unhealthy for teenagers particularly teenage girls it's bad for their mental health so it actually it it actually elevates suicide rates in teenage girls and this is a real statistical uh correlation correct? Yeah, so so I think they're taking a, a public health perspective on it. And and like you were alluding to earlier with the cigarette companies who, you know, claim that nicotine wasn't addictive. Um, it, it's a similar dynamic here that Congress is saying, hey, you know, this is bad for the mental health of our teenagers. You're hiding that information. You have not been transparent with the public. So, you know, now we have Senator Marsha Blackburn and Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat. So you have a Republican and a Democrat who are holding their second hearing on this this week to look into it. But again, I would say the politicians are going to argue back and forth, but it's parents who are in charge of their children. And I would encourage parents, be confident in your leadership. You know in your gut that this is not good for your kids. So it it doesn't mean you have to be a Luddite. Your child can do all their homework on a family computer in the, you know, living room, family room, kitchen, a public place where they won't be tempted to go down these very alluring rabbit holes, you know, and you can give them a phone. There's a product called the Light Phone, Gab Wireless, I mentioned. Your kid can have a phone. It just doesn't have to be 
a supercomputer. You know, if, if we don't want to raise screenagers, then screen-agers. don't give them screens to be connected to 24 hours a day. I mean, we're raising cyborgs and you point out that we ourselves struggle with being addicted to these devices. So we do have to set a good example, set limits on, on our screen time. And I guess my sort of thought with parents is that it's actually much easier to say no. It's easier to raise a happier kid. It's easier to raise a kid that's not being filled with this very insidious content that, you know, is making them less mentally healthy. The lack of mental health, where do you think it comes from? I can think of a couple of places, a couple of things, right? First of all, it raises expectations, especially for girls of a certain kind of bodily perfection that they can't meet. It raises expectations of, uh, of you know, this fabulous social life where a thousand people are liking you and if they don't like you, you're a failure. Another thing that I see that is very damaging for boys and girls is that kind of a public life where everything that they do is broadcast. I think that that lack of privacy, that lack of, of having your own tender spaces that, that you keep to yourself and, and you share maybe with your family and your closest friends, that has to be very bad for, for kids' mental health. What other things do you think are, are damaging our kids in that sense? Oh, I think you hit a lot of them. I mean, certainly the body image and, you know, fear of missing out because then kids are aware of every party they weren't invited to. The whole idea of life as sort of performance, uh, sort of living instead of living in the moment, enjoying the people that you're in person with, the thought of, oh, I have to get the perfect picture of this moment for my self-presentation online, for my image online. And and I love what you said about sort of your own sort of private tender spaces. We, we don't have to announce our relationship status online <laughs> at every step of the way. Um, yeah, so I think you had a lot of them, Gracie. You know, another thing that I see ch- young people doing that I think is very damaging is they've uh, exposed themselves to shame and, and also their families. You know, young people get very passionate. You remember being a young person, right, Maureen? We're at the same age. I think it wasn't that long ago. And we, we, you get passionate when you're young and you, you, you want to live out loud and say all the things that are at the top of your, at the, in, the, in the front of your head. And, and sometimes those things aren't, you know, they're not good to say. They're going to cause you shame now or later or your family. I see a lot of people acting, young people acting out online in ways that are going to hurt them very badly. Well, it's true because teenagers don't have, often don't have the judgment and experience to know what to say online or what not to say online. And I think, I think parents often feel so powerless over these devices. But again, I just want to encourage parents that you do actually have power over these devices because you don't have to give them to your kids. Your kids don't have to be online. And it's actually easier to raise kids who are not hooked on these devices and platforms. Um, So I just encourage parents to be strong and confident in saying no. Oh, thank you, Maureen. That's really good advice. And and yeah, let's let's parents stick together and and stop letting tech companies raise our children for us. We can do a much better job. Thanks for joining me today, Maureen. Great to be with you, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. So we eavesdrop on his famous dialogue with the young adult 
Christian tradition has dubbed the rich young man. The rich young man was a good man. He had kept the commandments of the Lord from a young age. He was concerned about the deepest and most important questions, like the one he asked Jesus. What good must I do to inherit eternal life? He already had some faith in Jesus, coming to him not just as a rabbi who knew a lot, but as a good teacher, whose whole bearing intrigued him to approach and ask about the way he should live in order to live forever. He also recognized that despite all his material wealth, despite even his moral goodness, there was something missing in his life. His heart yearned for more. He knew he was called to something greater. The life God intends for us consists, he realized, in so much more than merely not breaking the Decalogue. So he asked in St. Matthew's account of the same scene, What do I lack? Jesus looked at him with love and gave him the challenging, brutally honest, direct answer to his question. You lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It was a highly paradoxical answer. What he lacked was precisely that he had too much. He lacked total detachment from substitutes so that he could attach himself to the absolute. He had previously lived a good life, but Jesus was now calling him to greatness. He already had some faith in Jesus' good teacher who was reflecting the goodness of God alone, but Jesus was now calling him to an upgrade in faith, a total commitment. He had previously kept the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, all about love of neighbor. But now Jesus was calling to a much more radical following of both tablets of the Decalogue, to love his neighbor to the point of using all his possessions to care for them, and to loving God to the point of accounting him more valuable than all his stuff, and following him on the path of total self-giving love. St. Therese Lisieux, whose feast we celebrated at the beginning of October, taught that we grow in the spiritual life by subtraction, not by addition. Once a young religious sister sighed in her presence, saying out loud, When I think of everything I still have to acquire. And the little flower replied, You mean to lose? You're wanting to climb a great mountain, and the good God is trying to make you descend it. He's waiting for you at the bottom of the fertile valley of humility. The rich young man needed to learn this lesson. Unfortunately, he wasn't ready for the challenge that spiritual perfection requires, because he had so many possessions that owned him. He looked at the path of holiness as something he could add on to what he already had, whereas it was an emptying precisely so that Christ could fill him. The Lord is always asking us to let go of many of his gifts in order to help us recognize that the greater gift, greatest gift of all is the giver. The rich young man got the answer to his question that was erupting from the depths of his being, but he didn't like it. In fact, St. Mark tells us he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. When given a choice between Jesus and his money, the young man chose the money and went away sad because he was still lacking something that with all his wealth left him consciously imperfect and incomplete. This young man couldn't give up the wealth to follow the creator of every earthly treasure. Without a doubt, he was thinking he could both have his money and have what he was lacking. But Jesus said very clearly at another time, you cannot serve both God and money. We can similarly be trapped by our own hanging on to money. Jesus used the image of a needle and says that we'll never be able to pass through the eye of the needle into his kingdom as long as we're still grasping onto the fruit of our labor. It's not that material wealth or possessions are bad in themselves. In fact, they're blessings. 
The harm comes when we start to become attached to them, when they begin to own us rather than our stewarding them as gifts of God. The person who puts his treasure in earthly mammon isn't necessarily one we're defined as evil. He may even keep the Ten Commandments like the rich young man did from his youth. The lover of wealth in this world might even consider God really, really important. But for him, God is not God. God is not the most important thing in his life. Like with the rich young man when it comes to the time when he has to make a choice to part with his money or to serve Christ, he'll choose money. And like the rich young man, he'll remain sad because happiness is something that not even all the money in the world can buy. So what is a rich man or woman, and all of us are rich in relation to the vast majority of people in the world, to, to do? Jesus' disciples were exceedingly astonished at the severity of Christ's statement and asked, Then who can be saved? We ourselves can ask, Do any of us have a chance, or are we like camels before a microscopic hole? Jesus says in the Gospel that God makes it possible for us to be saved. He shows us the way, but those looking for an easy path are going to be disappointed. He tells us, Go, sell what you have, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Come follow me. Some preachers have done harm to people by trying to water down the stark and challenging threefold imperative of Jesus. But other preachers have perhaps done more harm because they've interpreted what Jesus said in a univocal way, saying that what the Lord is asking of us with all our responsibilities is to go down to the local pawn shop, get rid of all our stuff, and then go give it in lump subs to individual poor people, or the St. Vincent of Paul Society, or the food pantry in our parish, or the Salvation Army. It all comes down to what the Lord means by selling what you have. What he's getting at is spending our money, putting our resources at the service of love of others. There are many ways to give this money away. We give it away when we use it to support, not spoil, the members of our family. We give it away when, if we're, for example, a business owner, we use our capital to create jobs so that people can have work and support themselves and their loved ones. Such people also give away when they pay not just a fair wage, but a generous one to their loyal employee, so that they can more easily make ends meet. We give it away when we give it to the church founded to support the apostolic works of God. We give it away when we put it in the hands of Christ in the disguise of the poor and needy around us and around the world. It is by emptying ourselves of all greed, by giving of ourselves and what, we, what God has given us out of love for others, that we become capable of receiving what the Lord wants to give. In order for the material wealth we have not to become curses bringing us down, but rather blessings bringing us an eternal treasure, we have to transfer the funds, not to a Swiss bank account, not to the Cayman Islands, but to heaven, by putting these blessings directly or indirectly into the hands of Christ disguised in others. There are so many opportunities for us to transfer those funds, but we have to ask God intelligently in prayer, how, Lord, should I best give away the material blessings you have given me? At Mass this Sunday, the Lord will give us a choice, a stark one between His wisdom and worldly wisdom, between an earthly treasure and an eternal one, where, which moths can't destroy, rust corrode, or IRS agents can't take away. The apostles left everything to follow the Lord, putting their whole lives at God's service. The saints have followed suit. The hard-working people who sacrificed so much to build most of our parishes have been all in. And so the question for us is, what's our response going to be? 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 